The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. The scripture is taken from Acts 2, verses 41 through 46. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Acts 4, verses 31 through 35. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold. And laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. Before we get started, uh, let's pray this morning. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for promising to be with us always. We ask that you would uh, speak to us this morning through your word, and that you would shape us by your truth, 
and that you would lead us to fall more and more in love with you. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, Rebecca and I had the privilege of becoming members here shortly after the church began uh, meeting formally, and shortly after we returned from living in Kenya for two years. And then shortly after that, we had our first son, Isaiah, uh, who was born. And the baptism of my firstborn son is one of the most emotional experiences, unexpectedly emotional. I was sort of just kind of going into it, you know, that's what we Presbyterians do. I was raised Presbyterian, so didn't have a lot of questions about that. And then right in the middle when they got that, I realized what was happening, and I was holding my little baby. I just started weeping uncontrollably uh, as I realized that, that we were about to put this sign on my son that says, you are a part of the family. You are a part of the family. Uh, but the other thing that really uh, stood out to me, uh, and I haven't cleared permission with Betty to tell her that I'm going to tell this story, so Betty, get ready, sorry, uh, is that when Richard asked if the family would join up front as we baptized Isaiah, uh, up came my mother-in-law, up came my father-in-law, up came my mama and my grandma and my granddad, and up came Betty, my neighbor and friend. Now, at this point, Richard has since baptized this baptism process. But at that time, I don't remember us ever having done that before. And as I looked down the row at all of my blood relatives and saw Betty at the end of the row, I realized that there was something extremely right about that. That baptism meant that Betty and I were becoming family. Uh, a few years later, uh, my wife, must have not been too much longer because my son was still little, because she was quizzing Isaiah, who's in our family? Uh, mom's in our family. Who's in our family? Dad's in our family. Uh, who else is in our family? Ames is in our family. And uh, who else is in our family? And I think she was trying to get it like aunts and uncles or something. And Isaiah said, Rhoda is in our family, who's another one of our neighbors. And Isaiah was exactly right. He learned that baptism message at this church. That we, in the body of Christ, are becoming a family. A unique family. A family that goes far beyond the ties of blood. And that's what we're talking about in this passage this morning. These series of passages this morning, as we see the the birth of the church, is the birth of a family. And so, uh, the first thing I want us to see as we get started is that when people receive the good news about Jesus, they become members of a new family. Now, there's not anybody in the room who's going to say no to that, right? We all say stuff like that. And, you know, some of us have been in churches where everybody's brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so, you know. But but that's not the extent of it, okay? I'm not talking about in some esoteric, abstract sense, we are a family. That's true, too. That's true, too. But in Acts, we're seeing people who come to Jesus become part of a, a literal new community that becomes their primary place of allegiance, their primary community of support. This uh, baptismal blood, this baptismal water is thicker than blood, as, as it were, in this early church. They are becoming a new family that's visible and experienceable in those early days of the church. Now, to get kind of the background of what's going on, we need to see a couple things. One of the things that we should remember is uh, the first century in Jerusalem where these passages are taking place, nearly everybody would be poor. Okay? Nearly everybody would be poor. In fact, uh, a, a middle class, the word middle class doesn't even work talking about first century Jerusalem, but a middle class person would be uh, an impoverished person in our own context because a, a person with a trade or a person who was doing okay in the first century would be just on the edge of survival most of the time. They'd be one injury, one illness, one bad agricultural season from destitution. So 99% of the people in Jerusalem would be what we would call poor. And 
at the birth of the church at Pentecost, there was a whole bunch of people who weren't normally in Jerusalem because they'd come from the festival, right? And they came from all over the world. And so in Acts 2, uh, before we get to our passage, uh, just before Peter starts preaching, after the Holy Spirit comes on the church, and, and, and we're, this is where all these people that are in the church come from, uh, it says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. People from every nation under heaven, both Jews and proselytes. Now what the word proselytes means is that some of these Jews from every nation under heaven were ethnically Gentiles. They were people from other ethnicities who had become Jewish religiously, but ethnically they were not Jewish. And so this is an ethnically, uh, geographically, uh, linguistically diverse group of people that's been gathered from every nation under heaven to hear Peter preach. And pr- Peter preaches by the power of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 of these folks say, I'm in! You know, they sign the pledge card, they come up front, you know, they're playing just as I am down there, and somewhere around the 12th verse, you know, they come forward, right? And they get baptized, they become part of this new family that's now made up of a bunch of people uh, from all over the world, okay? And what we need to realize uh, that the way, this, this is particularly complicated because the way that all these poor people would survive in the ancient world, the only way that anybody survived in the ancient world was being part of a family. Not a nuclear family like two parents in the home and brothers and sisters, but an extended family, a kin group. Okay, And it was within a kinship group that you shared food, you shared uh, work opportunities, you shared the task of providing for yourself together within this extended kin group, and that's how you survived life in this very difficult first century world. So if everybody's basically poor, and the way you survive is a kinship group, and then 3,000 people from all over the place become Christians in a city that's not their own, we've got a real problem. Because all these people who are in Jerusalem who've decided to stick around and stay are now separated from their families, which is the way that you survive. Are you following me? Does that make sense? So not only is everybody in the ancient world vulnerable, but this group of 3,000 new Christians from every nation under heaven, ethnically, linguistically diverse, are particularly economically vulnerable because they've been separated from their kinship group. So against that background, what we see in Acts 2 and 4 is these folks becoming kin together. We see them becoming a new family, forming new ties which are not just spiritually beneficial, which are not just emotionally fulfilling, but are actually the way they will survive economically in society. is by being uh, the folks who've got each other's back in this new family. And we see this happening uh, not by magic, but in very practical ways. And I'm going to quickly walk through some of the ways that we see them becoming a new family. And if Matthew got the incoherent email I sent him at 11.30 yesterday evening, hopefully the verses will be on the screen. But if they're not, blame me, not, not Matthew. Okay, so, so how do we see them becoming a new family? Well, we see them becoming a family by sharing worship, teaching, prayer, and praise together. Listen to some of these lines. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Day by day, they attended the temple together, praising God. 
When they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke is giving us this relentless picture. He's relentlessly telling us this group of people worshiped together, prayed together, were filled with the Holy Spirit together. This is a worshiping community. But not just worship, they also shared their lives together. It says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, I've, I, I've put the Greek word up there, koinonia, because when I hear fellowship, I think uh, the sugar cookies that you have at the welcome table after the church service, the church that I grew up in. And that's not what fellowship means in the Bible. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean, you know, what you do if you're wearing a red shirt at downtown on Sunday morning. Koinonia fellowship is like relationships of giving and receiving. It's like relationships of mutuality, of sharing at the deepest level. So these people are, are devoting themselves to fellowshipping with one another. Uh, he unpacks, Luke unpacks it further for us. Devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, referring, I think, both to the Lord's Supper and to meals that they ate day in and day out. When they, uh, at day by day, Luke tells us, they broke bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. I love the language of devoted there, because we're talking about meals, talking about eating together, talking about kind of the messy in and out. But, but, but Luke says they devoted themselves to that stuff. That was serious business, this fellowship thing. It wasn't an extra you did at the end. This is at the core. They devoted themselves to teaching, and they devoted themselves to eating and being with one another. And the result, of course, is unity. And Luke has some remarkable expressions for their unity. They were all together. They all had one heart and soul. Remember, ethnically, linguistically, geographically diverse people from every corner under heaven, all struggling to get by, and somehow Luke tells us they all have one heart and soul. Anybody who's ever been in any church knows that that is a remarkable thing to say about the church. Right? You get four church folk in a room, and we've got four hearts and souls most of the time. Right? you got four different... I mean, I know... Uh, the, the leadership at downtown gets tired of hearing about my 19 different ideas about church all the time, right? One heart and one soul. This is a ridiculous thing, okay? And they were sharing not only worship, not only life, not only a unity of soul, but also possessions. And Luke tells us this enough times that we can't miss it. He says they had all things in common. He tells us that they sold all their possessions and belongings, excuse me, that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Luke tells us that no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own. They had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now on this last point, we need to make a couple clarifications. First one is, uh, this, the, the, uh, we don't like this, the, the, I like to talk about this, when I teach this class at MCATS in Bible, I talk about this is the passage that your parents and pastors taught you to explain away. <laughs> right? Because nobody likes this, right? Uh, post-communism, we're like, no, eh, uh-uh. Uh, and, but I want to tell you, this is not... It, it is it is communistic in a sense, but what's not happening is they're not just like liquidating all their fields and stuff and eating off the proceeds until the money's run out. This is not like a big lottery, okay? Uh, because nobody in the ancient world could afford to live that way. Nobody could afford to live that way. These people were becoming a family. And in the family, you didn't just eat together, you produced together. 
Okay, so remember I talked about people survived through kinship networks? That means that pretty much everybody was in the family business. If I get a job at the fishing boat, I'm calling my cousin or my nephew or my somebody to come with me. If, if, if Rebecca, my wife, is starting a kitchen garden, she's doing that with the four, eight, or 12 other women in our little group. Okay? If we've got sheep, my kids are taking them out and your kids are taking them out, and we're sharing whatever it takes to survive. So the picture here isn't of a group that's like sort of foolishly just eating everything. It's of a group that's saying, we are family. That means that we are the people who are responsible for us, for we. We are the people responsible for the new we surviving and thriving in this new situation because the only way that anyone survives is through family, and we ain't got that family anymore because we've said, these are our people. These are our folk. So it's not just, you know, stupid Marxists. But second of all, I want you to notice that the line of direction does not move one way. It's not like... Um, um, there's a sense in which the Holy Spirit waves his magic wand, right, and makes them of one heart and one soul, and this all this great stuff happens. But there's also a sense in which the Holy Spirit uses the stuff that they have to do to survive to create this new family. And I want to read and direct your attention to a quote uh, from Willie James Jennings' uh, commentary on Acts. Listen to this. He says, A new kind of giving is exposed at this moment. One that binds bodies together as the first reciprocal that is giving and receiving donation where the followers of Jesus will give themselves to one another. The possessions will follow. He goes on to say though, what is far more dangerous than any plan of shared wealth fair distribution of goods and services is a God who dares impose on us divine love. Such love won't play fair. In the moment we think something is ours or our people's, that same God will demand we sell it, give it away, or offer more of it in order to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or shelter the homeless. But listen to this. Using it to create the bonds of shared life. In other words, as this new family learned to share their possessions and share their bread and share their homes and share their resources, God used that sharing to create this new community. It was in the act of sharing that they became family, just as it was as much the fact of becoming family that gave them this vision for sharing. It's sort of like a feedback loop. Each one of these things is reinforcing the other. As we worship, we're beginning to see that we are a we. As we understand that we are a we, we're figuring out how we give up our possessions to help those parts of the we that are struggling. As we share possessions and as we invite you into my work and you into your work, we find that we are more of a we now because we are depending on one another. So what we see is a a community that is becoming family in the deepest, most radical ways. And what this means is that whereas, putting all that together, and I've used this metaphor before, uh, so forgive me for recycling it, uh, but what we're getting here is not a soup kitchen where a bunch of wealthy Christians, of which there weren't very many, uh, are making sure everyone out there gets fed. What we see instead is a potluck where every single person in the community is bringing a plate 
and receiving plates from everyone else. A community that gives and receives, where everyone, everyone is responsible for everyone else and dependent on everyone else. They are becoming a family. But second, if we put together chapter 6, which we read, with chapters 2 and 4, we can see that becoming family isn't easy, and the church said amen, and requires work from the whole community. In other words, some people write Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, off. Like this, just this is just utopian, man. That didn't really happen. That didn't really work. Well, actually, we know that it really did happen because Luke tells us about how hard it was and the great lengths they had to go to to keep it happening. And so, what we find in chapter six, unsurprisingly, if you've ever been in a church, you're waiting uh, for some of the church ladies uh, to start grumbling, and they do, right? <laughs> Not just the ladies. The men do that too. We do that too. Okay? If you've ever been in church, you know somebody's going to start grumbling. And in chapter 6, we find out that there are, in fact, indeed some grumblers. Right? And if you've been in a multicultural church, we are not surprised to know that these grumblers come from widows, most likely to be ostracized and marginalized because of their economic class. And they are Hellenists, meaning they didn't come from Jerusalem, meaning those most likely to be ostracized because of their language or ethnicity or geography. In other words, anybody who's been in church knows somebody's going to start complaining eventually. But for those of us who are trying to figure out what it looks like to worship across the various lines that separate us, we are painfully aware that those lines are likely to show up, reminding us that we have not yet become the family that we ought to have become. So what we see is these Hellenist widows say, we're being neglected. Okay, we're being neglected. Now, again, let's look at some of the background here. These Hellenists are probably diaspora Jews. What that means is they weren't from Jerusalem. Okay, so They're part of the ethnic geographical other. But also remember that some of those people were proselytes, so they may actually have been Gentiles. And then the second thing we learn is that they're being neglected in the daily diakonia. Now, again, I'm using the Greek word, and I apologize for doing that, but the reason is uh, the translation here obscures what's actually going on. It reads daily distribution. That's not actually what the text says, because the the word diakonia could mean ministry, it could mean service, or it could mean distribution. And in this text, it's used in all of those ways. So the same word is used when Luke says the widows were being neglected in the daily diakonia. And then in a minute, uh, the disciples are going to say, it's not right for us to neglect the diakonia of the word, where the word means service for evangelism and discipleship. And then later they're going to pick deacons who will devote themselves to this diakonia, meaning the ministry of the tables. Okay, So this one word can mean giving service or it can mean receiving service. So it's actually not 100% clear what's going on here. We typically take it to mean that there were handouts for the Hellenistic widows and that they were not being given those handouts appropriately. And that is very possible. In fact, almost certainly that's part of what's going on. But given that this is a family that's eating communal meals every day together, and given that in the ancient world it's precisely the women who prepare and cook 
and serve and clean up. It's equally plausible that these Hellenists are being overlooked as being able to participate in providing the meal. In other words, they may be barred from receiving plates at the potluck, or they may be being barred from giving plates at the potluck. And that illustration makes my broader point, which is whether we see this primarily as them being neglected in being able to serve or neglected in being able to receive or both, whatever, and this is the point here, guys, whatever is happening is not happening in a room on the side where poor people get taken care of. It's happening in the midst of these daily meals that families have together and which the church is celebrating together because they're a family. Whatever is going on with these Hellenistic, ethnically other, economically other folks is not that they've simply been cut off the welfare check or something. It's that they're being overlooked somehow when we sit down at the table where we all eat together giving and receiving plates in community. Do you see the difference that that makes? Uh, One scholar puts it this way. I think I have this quote on the screen. Only when the poor are the other, the charity cases, those not like us, can an organization relegate their care to a committee who hands them some alms on the side. But in our passage, what's actually going on, the question isn't simply are we giving enough charity, but are we including everyone in our households? Does everyone have a seat at our potluck? Are people welcome at our tables? Uh, Pastor Marlon Foster in South Memphis always reminds me that it's not about uh, do you eat from my table? It's are you welcome at my table? And the table that people are being welcomed to is not the table that belongs to a group of rich Christians who probably hardly exist in the early community. It's the table that belongs to Jesus and that everyone has been welcomed around in this new family. So what did they do about this problem? Well, first of all, pretty remarkably, uh, the widows are grumbling, and the apostles say uh, everybody's got to get together, right? The twelve summon the full number of disciples, which is remarkable in and of itself. If this were just about like handouts that happened in a corner over there, the pastors would have just taken care of it, right? The elders would have not brought this up to everyone, right? Their elders would not have, have brought all this mess. But no, this is at the heart of what the community does, This is at the heart of who we are. We eat and share and worship together. And if people are being overlooked or made to sit at the far end of the table when we eat and share and worship together, the whole community has to come together and solve this problem. So they all come together, and then the disciples say, uh, we can't neglect the ministry, the service of the word. Now, um, that could sound kind of bougie, uh, you know, like the real ministry is evangelism and discipleship. But it's not really that, because... First of all, they're going to appoint spirit-filled, godly people to do the service of the table. Second of all, remember, these 12 people are the 12 people that walked around with Jesus for three years. So it makes sense that they have a particular responsibility to make sure that his story gets told for, like, I don't know, the next 2,000 years or whatever. But this is no disparagement of this other thing that has to happen, which is that these meals, this we, this family has to keep going. And so they appoint men who are filled with God's Spirit, who are wise, 
and who based on their names primarily come from among the folk who brought this complaint in the first place. In other words, all the names of these new deacons are Greek names. They sound like the names of folks who come from out there rather than in here. Now, there's a lot of sharing of names in the first century, so some of those folks could be Jerusalemites, but basically we know the majority of them came from among precisely those folks who were being ostracized. So the apostles care so much about the fact that they're segregated somehow in their worship meal that they pick folks who've been segregated against and say, we need your help to fix this problem. And one of those guys is a proselyte, which as I've brought up several times, means that this guy wasn't even Jewish. Ethnically speaking, anyways. And they commission these guys and they lay their hands on them and give them the ministry of the tables, which I want to suggest to you is the ministry of the potluck. Responsibility not just for the aid that the widows certainly would have required, although it definitely included that, but people who are willing to wisely and spirit-filledly <laughs> take care of the church's togetherness, of their becoming a family. Okay, what does that mean for us? Uh, well, first thing is that our church is called to be a potluck that invites all to give gifts, not a nonprofit that primarily offers programs to poor folks somewhere else. And I say that as someone who is in nonprofits, who's been in nonprofits, that's my work. That's my thing. I like nonprofits. I like programs, right? And the church can have those and should have those. But ever, whatever we do, our primary task is to be a we that welcomes everybody. That's our primary work, is to be a potluck where people get provided for by being part of a new family. And to do this requires figuring out how we stir up the gifts of the body of Christ so that every single one of you who's here sees yourself as a giver and as a receiver. Which means that some of you who've been taught by society that you're, that you're not a giver, that you don't have gifts and abilities, that you don't deserve a place at the table, you need to know in this we, at this potluck, we uh, want and expect you to find ways to bring your gifts into this community. Every single one of you. And others of you who've been taught by society that you are a great giver and hardly ever a receiver, we need to remind you that if there's anybody in this room that you're not willing to receive from, you haven't gotten it yet. Because this ain't a service provider, it's a potluck. It's a party that Jesus is preparing. And it doesn't happen unless everybody brings a plate. So we've got to find ways to stir up the gifts of the body, and that's where the deacons came in in Acts 6, and that's where the deacons come in for downtown church, I want to suggest to you today. Uh, and I've been asked to preach about the deacons, so I want to tell you about a little bit about what we're trying to do as the deacons. Uh, we started the deacon, I don't know, 18 months or so ago, and we were committed to making sure that the problem we were solving was not that there were poor folks who needed help, it's that there were struggling folks who, because they needed help, weren't able to bring the plate they wanted to to our potluck. So we set out to say, what would it look like for when people have a need? We're saying, yes, yes, we want to help with that. We want to walk with you on that. Not least because you are one of us. And for this to be a family, we need everybody bringing plates and sharing at the potluck. 
And so we do things like we gather, uh, when we meet with people who have a need, we find out not only what's the immediate challenge, we also find out what are your dreams, what are your goals, what do you like to do, where are you headed. Uh, we don't just uh, write checks, we connect people who come to us for help with allies. Uh, some of you who filled out our gift survey have said, I'm willing to walk with someone who comes to the accident for help. And what that looks like is if somebody comes to me and says, I need help with this issue, and we meet with them, we pull in one of you, someone from the congregation, and say, you guys should hang out and walk with each other. And then not only do we do that, but we surveyed the entire congregation to figure out what y'all's gifts are, what you bring to the table. Are you willing to give rides? Do you have a special gift? Are you a lawyer? Uh, do, are you in charge of hiring at your business? Do you like to cook? Do you like to watch kids? And when we, the deacons and these allies find out that there's something that's, in, that's needed, we can bring in the, the gifts of the entire church into play. So we, we have seen people uh, that have come to the diaconate for help uh, get help by way of long-term relationships, by way of new jobs. We have seen people who've been cared for immediately begin caring for those who are worse off than them? I mean, immediately. Okay? Because what we're not trying to do is solve the you-don't-have-enough-money problem. We're trying to solve the problem of how do we all sit at this table and share our plate. So that's what the deacons are, are, are all about. And we want to commit some things to you going forward. One of those things we want to commit to you is that from now on, uh, we one of us will be present during the ministry of prayer that happens at the end of this service. So when they ask the elders and the community leaders to come forward, one of us deacons will be there too. And we want you to know that if you're struggling, if you've got something you want to talk through, if you've got an issue that's pressing, if you've got somebody in your life that you're ministering to and you've come to the end of your own resources and you don't know what to do, we would love to pray with you and hear how we can help. And a lot of you are just tuned out when I said, you know, anybody can come. But we've got to become a community where anybody can come, Right? And if you need to come talk to a deacon, we want you to know uh, that, that we see that as meaning you are a part of us, a part of our family seated around the table. And the other thing we want to do is we want to start gathering the members uh, occasionally uh, for Sunday school series and that sorts of things to say, what are the gifts that you have and the passions that you have for serving in our city that aren't getting deployed yet? And how could we talk about deploying those together? Instead of the deacons trying to plan ministries for you, the members, we're going to start saying, what are the plates that we could make at this potluck that we're not making because we aren't working together, and how do we work together? So when you hear about that, I hope you'll join in those conversations. But one of the things that we need from you as the members of this church is to help us find new deacons. Right now we have four, and we need more of them. Now, uh, if you are following all of this, uh, you already know uh, that deacons need to be people who are filled by the Spirit and love Jesus. This is not a board. You're not on a board where we sit around and look at check requests. Uh, This is about people who are ready to meet with people about their struggles and opportunities in the midst of real life. So we need deacons who love the Lord, who are committed to walking with people, who have some availability in their space and time, uh, and who are willing to stir up your gifts and abilities, because the only way that this potluck happens, or this diaconate happens, is if we work on it together. Okay, so what do you do? You uh, partner with us in the deacons. If you haven't filled out that gift survey, you need to do that. Sign up to be an ally. Give us new names of deacons. 
And in general, here's a catch-all. As the body of Christ, we need to keep figuring out how this community becomes family together. What are the disciplines and practices that allow us to become a family where everyone is welcome and where when inevitably certain people feel unwelcome, that comes up and gets addressed. Now, why does any of this matter as I close? It matters because there's one more thing that's happening in this church in all three passages that we read this morning. Uh, And that is that becoming a family is part of the way that God does mission. What happens when people from all walks of life become family? Well, Luke tells us, listen to these words, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. They continue to speak the word with great boldness. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, what we see is when, when the gospel creates a new family, that family sends people out on mission and draws people in to the table. Listen to what Finger, Rita Finger says again. In a, and just imagine this. In a crowded city where most people lived marginal and often desperate lives. Are there some people living marginal and desperate lives in our city right now? Absolutely. They had those folk in Jerusalem too. In that context, where many were cut off from previous kin groups back on the land, Luke has portrayed what was probably one of the great attractions of the new movement. The inclusive and joyful daily communal meals held in the next courtyard. And brothers and sisters, what I want to suggest to you is that whatever the justice and and mercy issues, whoever the people are that your hearts are grieved for in our city, the first thing we have to offer those people is the sound of a new family living next door that attracts them to a place where we give and receive and our needs get met in community through the hands and feet of Christ and by the power of His Spirit. There is no outward mission without the family of God at the table of God feasting on the body and blood of God. That is what we have to offer the world. And if we cannot arrange the seats at that table, there is no mission. So church, let's get to it. Let's Let's ask the Spirit to so fill us that we become a family in this place that is in its own life, in its own welcome, in its own hospitality, the solution to the curse far as it is found in our world. Let's pray. Jesus, we are aware that we are too broken to be used by you. We are too messed up individually and collectively. We do not deserve to be the table that you bring people to, and yet you call us saints. You call us your hands and feet. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make us into a people who bear witness to this potluck, to this community, to this temple where you are present in such a way that that those who are hurting, that those who have experienced abuse, that those who are depressed, that those who are lonely, that orphans and immigrants and refugees, that single mothers and and, and people uh, struggling with all sorts of addictions, that people from all walks of life would find in our family you, Jesus, and find that you are the solution to all our needs, 
that you are doing abundantly more than all we could ask or even imagine directly by your Spirit and through us. Lord, that task is unimaginable to us. But we pray that you would do it through us for your glory and for our benefit. We ask these things in your name. Amen.